beautiful singing this morning. Just imagine what that's going to be like when we're all in heaven. What a glorious, glorious day that will be. Looking forward to that. That time when he returns, and he will return, he is coming back. We rest in that hope confidently. We're going to continue this morning in Colossians chapter 3 as we continue to unpackage the significance of what Paul has for us here in this amazing epistle. We have been taking our time to work through it, using the occasion to understand the depths and meaning of significant doctrine that Paul is teaching, and uh, I trust it has been a blessing to you as it has been to me um, as we continue to work through this. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, then we'll, we'll get into the text today. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this wonderful occasion to be assembled together as the redeemed of Christ, to be here as your people, to sing praises to your name, to be assembled together in humble obedience to your directive that we should come together collectively as the body of Christ. We rejoice that you have saved us and made us fit for such an occasion, that you have brought us here for the purpose of reflecting and contemplating and understanding what your word says about us and about you and how we can know you and how we can know you in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thank you so very much for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the fact that he did everything that we couldn't and wouldn't do. Thank you for the life that he lived for so many years, never sinning, never violating your will, your precept, your precedence in any way. Humbly serving, living out all that was required for us so that we could stand in his righteousness alone. Thank you for this wonderful and so great salvation. We ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds today to receive the word. May we not be here merely to engage in some academic endeavor, but may we be truly transformed by the renewing of our minds as we open up the living word of God, which is sharper than any two-edged sword and able to discern and cut to the very marrow of who we are. Thank you for that. May we leave differently than we have arrived. We trust, Lord, that you would bless us with the presence of your Holy Spirit. It is by and through the work of your Spirit that our hearts are convicted and that we learn and we are instructed through your word. We pray, Lord, that you would work in the lives of those who are here today who do not know you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, and so as it is preached, we pray that it would go out with force and power and that it would break the power of sin in people's lives and that it would transform and change and open ears and eyes to comprehend the meaning of the words, the result of which would be to turn to Jesus Christ in faith. We pray, Lord, that you would keep us and preserve us for your glory and for your honor, protect us, help us to stand in difficult times, we pray for those who are facing difficulties today around the world, challenges that are unique and indeed even fearful. Be with them, gird them up, keep them, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Colossians chapter 3, a text which now has become quite familiar to us. Perhaps we read it so many times that we could do it by heart. That, of course, is the objective. There's a quiz, by the way. <laughs> so Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set or fix your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you will also be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked. 
when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you lay aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. And so here we have Paul's exhortation to these Colossian believers that is so important for us to be mindful of in the context in which it is presented. A false teacher has come into the midst of this Colossian church, a church which had been built up in the gospel by their faithful pastor Epaphras, who then traveled some 1,300 miles to Rome to communicate with Paul about this concern that he has about what's taking place in this church. In response to that, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens this letter that is taken then back to the Colossian believers and is read to them and and gives them instruction with regard to how they're to deal with the false teacher, they are to get rid of him, and to remind them of who they are in Jesus Christ. Paul's point here is that you are united with Christ. You need to get away from any teaching that takes you away from that. Anyone who would come to you and say to you that your salvation is based upon the things that you do, the things that you engage in or don't engage in, the behaviors that you choose to do that you somehow think if you're faithful in will ultimately result in your salvation is the very error that Paul is instructing the people to avoid. This false teacher has come into their midst with silver words and, 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 and speech that is appealing. It sounds important. It sounds intellectual. It may even have a ring of truth to it, but it is clearly in error because it is not based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. That is so very important for us to remember and to keep in mind as we focus on this passage. Paul here is emphasizing something that I'm going to spend some time now over the next couple of weeks really unpackaging. It's a concept, it's an idea, it's a principle of Scripture that is so important for us to understand, and that is the idea, the teaching of Scripture, that we are new, that we are new creation in Christ Jesus, that our union with Christ results in, in essence, a new humanity, a new people that are distinct and different from other people people, the other humanity, the unregenerate people. For Paul, that is demonstrated by living a particular way, not in the context of perhaps lifestyle attire and things of that nature, but in the things that we engage in and the things that we don't engage in. So in verse 5 of chapter 3, Paul introduces to us the principle that is consistent with these types of kingdom dwellers, this new humanity, the idea of putting to death sin in our lives. And in verse 8, he speaks to the idea again of that very same principle by detailing for us how this behavior plays itself out in our relationship with others and our speech. Verse 5 deals in particular with things that are typically characterized as being sexually immoral, the root of which is greed. In verse 8, as we know last week, we talked about the issues of speech that Paul was concerned about and anger, which is the root of these particular sins. So anger and greed are the roots that need to be hacked away and killed in order for their product to not flourish in your life. And so for Paul, this idea of basically becoming human again, as God intended for us to be, as God created us to be, we are able to do that in Jesus Christ, who was perfectly human in all respects. He was the Adam that the first Adam never was. This idea of a new humanity is so important for us today because there are those who are telling us that that we need to become like God others in order to appeal to them, in order to make the the message of Scripture more acceptable and more adaptable and more appealing. And as a consequence of that, we're losing our identity. I think that the heart of the social justice gospel 
critical race theory, gay Christianity is a rejection of the very things that Paul is teaching here in Colossians chapter 3 to these Colossian believers, keeping in mind that Paul is teaching this principle because there is a false teacher who is teaching something other than that. Keep that in mind. Paul's reminder to you in chapter 3 and to the Colossians believers is driven by the idea that the false teacher is taking their eyes off of Christ and putting them into a paradigm that is antithetical, contrary to Scripture, to the way that Christians ought to be living, to the things that Christians should do, and what, most importantly, motivates them to do that. Why do you put sin to death? Why do you flee sexual immorality? Why do you deal with the anger that is in your life that produces out of it wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech? Because you can and you want to. You're a new creation in Jesus Christ. You are a new human. What an unbelievable concept. I'm going to unpackage that for us. So, Here we have Paul in chapter 3 giving us a call to a devout and holy life, if you will, which encompasses within it the need as Christians to not only be conscious of the many ways we sin against God and other people, but more than that, to be more deliberate and ruthless in the way we deal with sin. All of this is true because we no longer belong to the domain of darkness but have instead been brought into the kingdom of God's own Son. Go back to Colossians chapter 1. Remember, context is king when we interpret Scripture. So Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, as a basis for a reminder, communicates us to the idea that there are two types of humanity. There are those who are outside the kingdom of Christ, and there are those who are within the kingdom of Christ. There are those he has rescued from the domain of darkness, and there are those he has not. And that makes all the difference in the world. For those that he has rescued from the domain of darkness, because one cannot rescue themselves, one must be rescued, right? As a consequence of that, he then has an anticipation and an expectation that his citizen kingdom dwellers are going to act in the context of a new humanity that reflects both their capacity and their identity in Jesus Christ. This is very important for us. And so Paul, building on that idea, building on the consequences of our regeneration, begins to communicate in chapter 3 what Christians can now do, what they want to do. Doing the things in chapter 3, hacking sin to death, putting sin to death, not being engaged in immorality and impurity and passion and evil desire and greed and anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech, those things in and of themselves do not save you. They, your, your ability to not do those things, to identify those things, is a consequence of your salvation. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 11, Paul communicates the idea that people who had been engaged in these things had been saved by God. They were justified, sanctified, and they are kept by Christ. Such were some of you. Christ in the Gospels is quick to condemn those who would identify a model of the Gospel that would incorporate into it any type of faithfulness on your part in the the performance of works. If you have any doubt about that, you just need to go back and read Matthew chapter 23, where he absolutely skins the Pharisees for that calls them all sorts of names. A brood of vipers, a den of thieves, whited sepulchers, dirty dishes. He spares no punches. Because these people, these Pharisees, these prideful people in their faithfulness are taking people's eyes off of Jesus Christ. The consequences of that are so severe, are so, are so dire, that shortly after that, 
you get into Matthew 24, we find out that in a short time, in that generation, something is going to happen that is going to completely obliterate the religious system that is attached to that teaching. The tabernacle is destroyed. It's gone. Judgment comes. And so the idea of focusing on Christ is important. It's a part of this new humanity. So for those who know Christ, they will bear, for those who know Christ, they bear his image in their individual and corporate lives. That is their lives within the church and outside of it as well. This is the result of our justification and sanctification in Jesus Christ, which is done by God for us in Christ. All that Jesus ever did, all that Jesus ever lived, has been given over to me positionally by God's grace. I live in his finished work. As a consequence of that, I rest in his finished work joyfully and delightfully living for him by putting these sins to death. So in verse 9, Paul then continues with the picture, the idea of this continuing battle or mortification of sin. I had related to you earlier on when we began working in this passage that one of the biggest misunderstandings people have about Christianity is thinking that becoming a Christian basically means becoming a better person. And in that way, Christianity is confused with morality. The good news of the gospel is then reduced to simply good advice. And a religion of self-effort and moral reform replaces the true gospel of redemption, grace, and transformation. The message of guilt, grace, and gratitude. Why do I not engage in these behaviors? It's because of the gratitude, the gospel gratitude I have for what Jesus Christ alone has done for me. Jesus never did any of these things. Jesus never engaged in these behaviors. He did that for me. So his life in that way is given over to me by God. I get to rest in that finished work. When, Jesus, when God looks at me, he doesn't look at me in the context of my sinfulness as the redeemed of God. He looks at me as a trophy of grace standing in all that Jesus Christ did. Isn't that wonderful? How is it then that we don't live more joyfully as a result of that? The Bible tells me repeatedly that the joy of the Lord is my strength. That joy is rooted in understanding the idea of who we are in this context of new humanity. And so, Paul here continues to unpackage for us the importance of understanding this. Jerry Bridges, as we know from our study in Transforming Grace, it's in your bulletin if you want to take a quick look. There's a quote there from Jerry Bridges. I did that intentionally because I think this dovetails nicely into what we're talking about here in Colossians, understanding the motivation and the idea of what it is that, that we do as new humanity in Christ. Bridges would write in Transforming Grace the following, this instantaneous act of God by which he begins sanctification in us is just as much a gift of God's grace as is justification. God does not wait until we surrender all make a, submit, a second commitment to Christ's lordship or anything like that. God gives sanctification by his grace. By his grace. What a wonderful and comforting truth that is for us. Turn to 1 Thessalonians with me. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23 to 24. Look at what this doxology says. First Thessalonians 5, 23. It's just a couple pages over from where we're at. 
1 Thessalonians 5, 23. Look at, look at how Paul writes this. Now may the God of peace himself do what? Sanctify you entirely. Who's doing the sanctifying? God is through Christ. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. What will he bring to pass? Your sanctification, your perseverance, your preservation, your place in heaven with him. Why? Because of your faithfulness or because of his faithfulness? Whose faithfulness are we concerned about here, folks? Yours? How faithful are you? How much faithfulness does it require? How much faithfulness do you need? What if you die on a bad day? What if you die on that one day when you weren't as faithful as you were the day before? Oh, man, that's a bad place to be. How do I do that funeral? Well, you know... If he had only died on Monday. (laughs) But it's a Tuesday, and he had a bad Tuesday. No, Jesus never had a bad Tuesday. Right? And so, what Paul, this is a doxology of praise for Paul. He is praising God for the peace. The God, the, 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 the peace that's associated with the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And he does. In the finished work of Jesus Christ, not in your faithfulness. And so, Paul there is reminding us, and basically that's what Bridges is communicating to us in Transforming Grace when he talks about the idea of the comfort that we can have in this type of positional sanctification. How it is that this is reflected in our new humanity. And for Paul, that is certainly important for us to be mindful of. What Paul is telling us and what he told the Colossians and Thessalonians is that the reason we can strive to progress in our sanctification that is, the incremental working out of our salvation gifts is because God is the one working in us. We work because God works. In other words, God works in us, giving us holy desires through a new will. That new mind, that new understanding, those new affections, that new capacity, that new identification. And he gives us the holy ability to do those things, the work, if you will. And all of this is for his good pleasure, not mainly for our personal fulfillment. Although we will experience both joy and peace in Christ as we bear his image. The consequences of this, this praise that Paul is relating to us is the fact that that we can be content and joyful in Jesus Christ because God is going to see to it that it happens because it's based upon not what you're doing, but upon what Jesus Christ is doing. Look at this, Philippians. Chapter 2. Now, a lot of us like to live in verse 12 because you're morose you like feeling bad and 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 afraid but you're misunderstanding the whole point that paul is making so verse 12 let's read it philippians 2 12 so then my beloved just as you have always obeyed not as in my presence only but now much more in my absence work out your salvation with fear and trembling But look at verse 13. So the conundrum that maybe verse 12 creates for some people is resolved and rectified in verse 13. How am I going to work out my salvation with fear and trembling? I'm going to do it in the context of what Paul says in verse 13. Remembering, it's still the same sentence. It's still the same sentence. Verse 13, for it is you who is at work in you, both to will and to work. No, that doesn't say that. 
No, it says this, for it is God who is at work in you. To do what? Both to will, the context, the mind changes, the affections change, the desires and the motivations change, both to will and then to live it out, to work for his good pleasure. Colossians 3, 5, new humanity, you put sin to death. You flee sexual immorality. You move away from that prior conduct and behavior and bent. You were formerly the sons of disobedience. That's one humanity. You're now new creation in Christ Jesus. That's a different humanity. And the context of the reality of that is played out in the way that you behave and live. Because God is doing it. God has changed you. He is working in you. It is his will at work in you now, not Satan's. It is not the world's corrupt system, the fleshly desires that corrupt us. It is the new spirit that indwells us and that impels us to will, to do the things we once could not do, and to work it out joyfully because God has ordained it for us. That's what's going on. This is the new humanity that Paul is so concerned about. God works in us. And all of this is for his good pleasure. Not mainly for our personal fulfillment. John Owen said, and this is important, there is no death of sin without the death of Christ. What is the result of that? If sin has been conquered and killed by Jesus Christ, it only makes sense that those who call themselves Christians, Christ ones, are going to be doing what he accomplished for them, right? You're indwelt by his spirit. The consequences of that is that you end up doing what he did. That's that you become little gods. You don't. Remember 2 Peter chapter 2 Verse 4 says that we are partakers of the divine nature. We don't become, we get to partake, though, of the power of that. Only Jesus is the full manifestation of God. That's what Paul told us in Colossians, did he not? He is the fullness of the deity in all aspects. The Godhead. And so when John Owen says there's no death of sin without the death of Christ, he's driving us to the place of knowing how then we too can deal with sin. That sin has no longer a master over us. This is why Paul in Colossians 3 says what he does. And turn back to Colossians 3 in verse 8. But now you also can do something. And that is what? Put them all aside. Put these things aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Verse 9, the the flow out of that continues with this type of relational type of sin mortification. Do not lie to one another. Do not lie to one another. So based on what Paul has taught so far, we understand, like Owen, that the only way you can really kill sin is through faith in Christ who has already died for your sins on the cross. This event created a new you, a new humanity. Paul here is communicating, importantly, a doctrine of humanity, of, of, of communicating the distinction between the redeemed and the unregenerate. There is a new creation, a group of humans, if you will, called what? Christians. A new kind of humanity that hates sin, loves Christ, and therefore has a desire to kill it. So in verse 9, we have a straightforward command to stop lying, which is a characteristic of members of the new humanity. Right? That's what Christians do. It's what we ought to do. This is important for us to keep in mind. It doesn't mean that we don't ever lie. You ever told a lie? Be careful, you might lie. (laughs) Of course, we get to reflect 
when we do lie on the fact that there was one who never lied for me, and that's Jesus Christ. I get to rest in his fact and the fact that he never lied. And when I do lie, I confess it, 1 John 1, 9, because he's faithful and just to forgive me of those sins. So do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And so Paul here now is really beginning to unpackage for us something that's significant in regards to these types of sins that he wants us to be alert to and to, and to recognize. And so Paul, in that context, sets out before us, again, the picture of us dealing with sin. That's what Christians do. We don't live in and revel in our sin. We want to deal with our sin in a way that is meaningful and reflective of who we are. And so the Paul, com- Paul does command, do not lie. We see that in verse 9. Very direct. Do not lie. It's, it's grammatically in the present tense, and it's an obligation that continues beyond the present moment. Do not lie and don't keep lying or don't lie again. There ought to be a stopping to this behavior. So Paul here is speaking to either an action that's now in progress, that it be stopped, or forbidding any such deception in any form at any other time into the future. And the important thing is this. The context of the directive is within the church. Do not lie to one another. So again, to whom is the epistle written? It's written to the saints in Colossae. That's how it opens up. The holy ones, they're called. That's what the word saint means. And so Paul here says, do not lie to one another. So apparently, there was some issue within the Colossi church that related to this type of behavior. He's giving them a directive to deal with perhaps a current issue or problem. That would make sense because the teaching of the false teacher would have led people to live in a manner that is loose and, and inconsistent with Scripture. This behavior was not being checked. Of course, Paul would not condone lying to non-believers. He's not saying that. But certainly in the church, this is important. And so in the, in, 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 in the context of what we knew from before in verse 8, lying is a sin of the tongue. It should be grouped with those vices that were listed in verse 8. They come out of that same root, if you will. It's interesting, too, that this word describes not only the verbal communication of a falsehood, but also deceptive actions. Deceptive actions. We saw this in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Thus Paul may have in mind not simply lying words, but the lying lifestyle of one who claims the name of Christ but continues to live after the old sinful nature. Such a one may be living a lie, as we sometimes say. And this is something that Christians must not do. So when he demands that we don't lie, he's encompassing within it the sense of which one would be engaged not only in a verbal lie, but in a lying lifestyle. One who would be engaged in the very practices that are condemned here, yet claim to be a believer. Someone within the midst of this congregation who is engaged in those things that are prohibited in verse 5 and verse 8, unchecked. Paul says that has to stop. Do not lie, do not live falsely amongst one another. Which is interesting because that then imposes upon us an obligation to say, wait a minute, what are you doing? What's going on here? Why are you doing that? Stop it. Stop it. Paul has an expectation that in the context of their regeneration in Jesus Christ, there's going to be a different way of living and responding to sin. This plays out in a very basic level, if you will. This is just communication. This is just living with people, interacting with people, engaging with people. For there to be harmony within the church, these types of behaviors have to stop. You've got to stop acting like the grapes of wrath. 
and you got to stop lying to each other. We talked last week about how that word anger communicates the idea of that, that exploding juice from a fruit and how it, how it comes out and, and goes, all, goes everywhere. In conjunction with that, there is the lying that goes on as a part of that type of behavior. So, what's interesting now is this. He, he doesn't just, isn't it interesting? Look at this. Look at, verse, look at verse 9. Do not lie to one another. There could be a period there and he just moves on. But no, that's not the way Paul works. What does he do? He's going to explain to you why you don't lie to one another. Now, you may say to me, Pastor, are you serious? He's going to cover that again? Yeah. There's something very important about this. Paul is, again, reaching back into this picture of who we now are compared to who we once were. He's basically saying to them, be who you are, not what you once were. That's important. You used to be, verse 6 and 7, the sons of disobedience. But now you're not. As a consequence of that, there's a, there's, there's a reason that you end up not engaging in these behaviors. And so for Paul, this is important. So he goes back again into this picture that we've talked about before. Paul gives support for the prohibitions that are listed in verses 5 and 9a. Using that imagery of taking off one's old clothing that we reached into in verse 8. But using a different word, this phrase, since you have laid aside. The basic notion of this word is that of stripping off clothing. And this is a stronger term than what he even used in verse 8, where he said, put aside. And indicates something even more fundamental, something foundational that makes that action possible. So, as you look at this, verse 9, do not lie to one another, comma, since, because of, as a consequence of, as a result of, having laid aside the old self with its evil practices. Now, this, this is important. What Paul is commanding here and setting before the Colossian believers is possible only precisely because of what God has done through Christ on the cross. He's reaching back into the doctrine, the theology of chapter 2. The reality, the consequences of what is communicated in verses 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and 15. Which speaks to the transformative nature of our salvation. Being placed in this new humanity. So it is possible... This is something that you can do. You're not being asked to do the impossible and bearing in mind as we understand what positional sanctification results in, we know that, the, that God is at work to accomplish it because it's been accomplished in Jesus Christ. You're simply living out the reality of having been placed in his righteousness. Do you see this? This is very important. Getting this wrong results in a lot of self-righteousness and pride. Because if you picture yourself as the person who's engaged in this type of taking on and taking off, without connecting it to what God has done, you're going to become a Pharisee. And so Paul wants to make certain that that's very clear. Any ability to change our ways is a result of Christ have, having changed our identity. Any ability, any ability to change our ways is a result of Christ having changed our identity. New identity, new capacity, new affections, new desires. Because 
Christ disrobed and thus disarmed the demonic powers that once sought to hold us in bondage to sin. We see this, and look at the imagery in verse 15 of chapter 2. Go back, we can go back and read it. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Verse 11, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so Paul is reaching back to verses 11 and 15 in particular. And it's through him that we have laid aside the old life of slavery, as we see in verse 9. And we are able to lay aside falsehoods, lying. And it's interesting to me that the tense that's used here, that aorist tense that we like so much in the Greek language, views this as a decisive action. A decisive action. So this begs the question, when did this action take place? Is this action of putting aside this idea of taking off something that occurs in our salvation Or is this an event of one sanctification subsequent to salvation? Given the corresponding expression of the next verse, and have put on the new self, as we'll see in verse 10, it seems best to understand this as descriptive of the change wrought by faith at the time of salvation and witnessed to in one's expression of his commitment to Christ through baptism and repentance and things of that nature. Do you see what's happening here? So, as a consequence of being saved, something happens that is connected to what I then do because I was saved. So, I am not going to do this. I am not going to put aside the old self with its evil practices, if I've not been saved. Why? Because I'm bound to my nature. I like my sin. I live in my sin. I am a son of Adam. But now because I am a joint heir of Christ, I have been united with him as a consequence of faith, which is a gift of God, Placed in Jesus Christ, something happens. What flows out of saving faith is what? Repentance. Repentance is never the cause of salvation. It is the consequence of salvation. People who aren't saved can't repent. Did you hear me? People who aren't saved can't repent. Let me say it one more time. People who aren't saved can't repent. How does repentance come? Well, you know what? Repentance is a gift of God. Look with me at Acts chapter 11. Using the Bible to help me understand the Bible. Acts eleven eighteen. Look at this passage. This is so good. Acts eleven eighteen. When they heard this. And, and this is a response to the, 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 the communication of salvation that was spreading into the Gentiles. When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Oftentimes, we mix this up. We begin to talk more about our repentance than the faith aspect. Repentance follows faith. It is not a joint worker with faith. Keep this in mind. Repentance flows out of 
the new humanity that you are given by God in your salvation. So when Paul says to them this principle in Colossians 3, 9, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, he is reflecting and communicating to them the resulting new humanity that is theirs in Jesus Christ and the resulting behavior that comes out of it. Those who used to lie, guess what? They stop lying. Why? Why on earth do they stop lying? Because God has saved them and has convicted them of their sin and reveals to them that lying is an affront to God. It's bearing false witness. It violates his law. Having been saved, they now want to live in the context of their new identity and capacity to joyfully delight in the law of God. David would say, the law is a delight to him. It is a lamp unto his feet. Why? Because he now knows how to live in a way that's pleasing to God. God has given them the ability to do it, and he wants to do it. And it's also there because God is working in him to will and do it. This is why we've got too many people walking around who saying they're Christians and they're not. Because this is not a reality. Christians look too much like the world. They, they, they engage in all the behaviors of the world. Indeed, the whole entire church is now identified by the sins of the world. What is going on? Where is the reality of this? Now, what happens is this. As we begin to think about this new humanity, as we begin to think about the fact that God has wrought us in us as a part of the salvation, that the consequence of real salvation is what? Repentance. Repentance really happens. When I begin to hear that and understand that, then when someone comes to me and says, well, you know what you need? You need a social gospel message. That's the only way we're going to stop people from being racist. We need to embrace Karl Marx's idea of critical race theory, bring it into the church. No, we don't. We need to understand Colossians chapter 3. And when, get, wait, look, look. When I understand that, what happens to me is that I begin to comprehend why it is that people are doing what they're doing and that some social construct isn't going to fix it. It will never fix it. The pig always returns to the mud and the dog goes back to its vomit, is what the scripture says. What happens is that there is a renewal, there is a newness that breaks down all the barriers in any distinction because I am a new human in the context of my kingdom dwelling in Christ, Colossians 1.13. That's a whole lot of a simpler message than critical race theory. And that message will actually result in someone being saved and changed. Critical race theory isn't going to change anybody. Oh, you might put that coat on them for a while, but it's going to wear thin, and it's going to all go, what's behind it's going to show through. Do you see what's going on here? This new humanity. So again, any ability to change our ways is a result of Christ having changed our identity. You want, stop, you want to stop people from being racist? They need Jesus Christ. And I will tell you something. Someone that God genuinely saves is not going to continue in that sin. It is it is dichotomous to who they are. It is, it's an oxymoron to talk about racist Christians, just like it is about gay Christians. Again, defining Christians by the sum of their sins is not what Paul is doing here. He is defining Christians by their ability to stop sinning based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. We've been sold a bill of goods by a lot of people who know better. That's another gospel and needs to be rejected. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to continue to unpackage this picture of a new humanity because the consequences of it are wonderful. 
and Paul now in the balance of chapter 3 begins to play out the reality of what this looks like and how people interact with each other and how we live with each other and how we interact with our spouses and with our children and with our employers, all because of this new humanity that we're in, in Jesus Christ. So, this begs the question, always, do you know him? Have you been changed by him? Is this the reality of your life? Or is your life marked by, I don't know, focus on your own faithfulness, your own self-righteousness? Are you reveling and loving your sin and not hacking, hacking it to pieces and killing it? There's a problem if that's the case. Now, I'm not saying that Christians don't sin. They do. Sometimes they sin big, and God is gracious, and I'm glad that he is, and I'm glad that I get to look to the finished work of Jesus Christ when I do sin. I don't like my sin. I hate my sin. Paul hated his sin. Romans chapter 7, he's lamenting the battle that he has with sin and gets to the end of that lament. And he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And he goes right to Jesus Christ. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Paul's hope was never in his faithfulness. It was in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And because of that, he lived it out in the reality of what he did each and every day. Do you know him? Who are you trusting in? Are you living for him? Does your, is your life marked by holiness? The, the Puritans used to talk about a devout, a devout and, and, and holy life. They were speaking to the reality of this new humanity. Do you know him? If you don't, and the Holy Spirit has convicted you this morning through the preaching of the word, and you're saying to yourself, I'm not that person. I am captured in my sin. You can cry out to him right where you're sitting, and he will surely save you. All who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's no trick. There's no riddle. And there's no you quantifying the work of your life, hoping that you've done enough for some future salvation. No, you get to rest in that peace now. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would grant to you the faith, the saving faith that is the gift of God and the following repentance that flows out of true conversion. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for these wonderful truths that are contained in your word. Thank you for loving us so much to give them to us so that we can know the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and live in the reality of it. Forgive us for faithing in our faithfulness. Forgive us for looking to ourselves, forgetting that you are the author and finisher of our faith. You are the Alpha and Omega. And he who has begun a good work in us will see it to the end. Thank you, Lord, for that wonderful promise. Give us boldness, give us conviction, and give us peace as we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Keep and preserve us for your glory and for your honor, we pray in our blessed Redeemer's name. Amen. God bless you.